We're coming to the last part of this section. Uh, this chapter is called Practicing Dharma, and this uh, first talk in it is called The Path to Peace. So uh, we finished yesterday talking about the sort of progress of, um, of insight, liberation, and um, the mind being um, the mind being the mind, and the objects of mind being the objects of mind. Having discerned the Dharma in this way, the mind will withdraw to a less intense level of practice, which the scriptures describe as the mind undergoing change of lineage, quote-unquote. This refers to the mind that has experienced a transcending of the boundaries of the ordinary human mind. It's the mind of the ordinary unenlightened person breaking through to the realm of the noble awakened being. But this is still taking place within the mind of the ordinary unawakened person. Such an individual is someone who, having progressed in his practice until he gains temporary experience of nirvana, withdraws from it and continues to practice on another level, because he has not yet completely cut off all afflictions. It's like someone in the middle of stepping across a stream. She knows for certain that there are two sides to the stream, but she is unable to cross over it completely, so she steps back. The understanding that there are two sides to the stream is similar to the change of lineage. It means that you know the way to go beyond the mental afflictions, but are still unable to go there. Thus you step back. Once you know for yourself that the state of transcendence truly exists, this knowledge remains with you constantly as you continue to practice meditation and develop your spiritual perfections. You're certain of both the goal and the most direct way to it. There's a number of uh, very significant um, pieces in there. So change of lineage, uh, in Pali this is called the Gotrabu, Gotra is your family, or your clan, your, your lineage, your, your, your sort of group. Um, so uh, Gotra Bu, the change of lineage, and um, that is, a, is uh, an equivalent to stream entry. It's another way of talking about stream entry, is that change of lineage. And it's, uh, uh, it's always struck me as an interesting and useful term because it's describing how where we think we come from. So if the mind is identified with uh, the body, so if there's uh, self-view, you know, I'm the body, I'm the personality, is generally the, uh, the sort of uh, way of characterizing self-view, that uh, um, this, is, this is who and what I am completely and absolutely this is, this is me. The, uh, the Gautrabu, the change of lineage, is recognizing, well, if the body is not self, then um, what does that say about where we come from or what our ancestry is or what our... Uh, affiliation or, or our, our origin is, and so the um, the change uh, of lineage is then referring to that particularly letting go of of the habits of uh, sakaya ditti, self view attachment to the body, the personality. And so, you know, if the body is not self, then what what does that say about um, the the sense of where we come from? So it's changing the view to the the dhamma as being the the place or the source of of origin, uh, the source of reality, rather than our, ge- uh, our, bi- uh, our kind of biological parents, and so that. Um, and when, say, for example, the uh, uh, the Buddha went back to to Kapilavatu, 
and his father criticized him for going on arms round through the through the streets of the town. He said, "This is against the the customs of our lineage." And he said, "I, I belong to the lineage of the Buddhas, <laughs> Dad." Yeah. Well, he didn't. <laughs> yeah, I think he said, "Great King" rather than Dad. But, yeah. um, the uh, but that uh, but also speaking from a place of, of sincerity and clarity. That's he wasn't identifying with the. Uh, the human form, uh, or the or his or his biological family, and then another um, encounter that I, I quote very often is when he was um, he was met by a, a Brahmin who was wandering through the countryside, and the, this uh, Brahmin called Dona uh, saw the footprints uh, of the Buddha in the dust by the roadside, and he saw these these footprints with these very um, Unusual marks made by the, the lines on the soles of uh, of the Buddha's feet, and thought, "Wow, who who do these foot who do these footprints belong to? Where, where did they come from? You know, what kind of a being could have made these these footprints?" So he follows the footprints into the forest, and he finds the Buddha sitting un, under a, a tree meditating. And so then uh, he goes up and, and sort of kneels before the Buddha, and uh, and um, then a conversation starts up, and uh, his uh, he, the 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 impact of seeing the, the Buddha meditating, you think, wow, who is this? This being is obviously very radiant, very peaceful. There's this kind of powerful uh, sort of presence of, of serenity around this being. And so, and he starts off by saying, excuse me, are, are you a, a deva? And he says, no. and the Buddha responds saying, no, I'm not a deva. And he says, are you a Brahma god? And no, I'm not a Brahma god. He says, are you a, uh, are you a yaka, a celestial demon? Says, no, I'm not a yaka. And he says, are you a human being? He says, no, I'm not a human being. <laughs> and uh, you know, a Buddha cannot lie. Is it, uh, as I was um, recounting in, uh, in one of the readings a day or two ago, that's one of the things an arahant can't tell a deliberate lie. So when the Buddha is asked, are you a human being, you know, uh, manusosi, uh, then he, he well, the, the, the precise way he responds, he says, that, why, that whereby I could be known as a human being, has com- been completely abandoned and cut off and um, made like a palm tree stump. Um, and so then, at the end of that whole sequence, then Dona says, so, excuse me, but what are you? <laughs> and then the, the, uh, the Buddha replies, uh, you, uh, you can hold me as, uh, as one who is awake, buddhoti mang tareta. So that, or that, or you can hold me as that which is awake, one who is awake. Buddhoti, and that's one of the reasons why we use the word Buddha to refer to the great being. Is that, uh, as I understand it, is that precise dialogue, Buddhoti? So when he was saying, well, when he's asked the question, well, what are you, uh, Buddho, uh, uh, awake? Um, so that he didn't identify with with being a manusa, being a human being, um, at that point either. So that's a, a way of uh, illustrating that sense of a change of lineage. And that's not uh, fanciful thinking either, I would say. That's quite, quite accurate. Similarly, um, uh, in the little booklet of Ajahn Chah's sayings called No Ajahn Chah, then it, it, uh, uh, it's one of the, uh, the quotes or the, uh, the passages that is highlighted is that somebody uh, came to, to visit uh, Ajahn Chah, came to Wat Bapong, and uh, as they were talking, they said, you know, how old are you? Do, you? do you live here all the time? And the Buddha said, "I have no age, and I don't, uh, and I don't live anywhere." <laughs> so, if you if you have an age, or if you if you live somewhere, 
then you, then there is a self. Uh, and if there's no, and, and if there's a self, then there's always trouble. If there's no self, then there, there's no trouble. So similarly, you know, Lumpucha, also known as an arahant, you couldn't tell a lie. And he says, "How old are you? I don't have an age." <laughs> Regardless of how old the body might have been, that uh, speaking from that uh, that place of the embodiment of, of Dhamma, then it's like the Dhamma is really a Dhamma desana, a demonstration of Dhamma. Desana means uh, like darshan in Sanskrit or Hindi. Uh, it's a demonstration of Dhamma. Uh, Lumpur Chao said, "You know, I, I don't have an age, <laughs> and I don't live anywhere, even though." He was very much based at Wat Bapong for many, many years, physically. But uh, coming from that that place of clarity, then he's saying, I don't have an age, I don't live anywhere. So then uh, then he makes these interesting comments about uh, reaching that level of um, stream entry. It's the mind of the ordinary, unenlightened person breaking through to the realm of the noble, awakened being. And then uh, he talks about this, this sense of of um, uh, of say uh, being a less intense level, or um, um, having progressed in, in the practice until gaining temporary experience in nirvana, withdraws from it and continues practicing on another level. So that that languaging of it is very interesting, and uh, uh, it's a it's kind of a bit unusual. But uh, I think it is also indicating a certain sort of stage or a, a, a point of realization that, that's been reached and um, the, in the the book uh, The Island that uh, Lumpur Pasanna and I put together on different teachings on Nibbana he put uh, I think four chapters all on stream entry so if you're interested in more sutta quotations about stream entry and and his reflections on that so those were all chapters written by Lumpur Pasanna um, then uh, the uh, it's about the how uh, stream entry is really a spiritual turning point, and so it's interesting how Lumpur Chad talks about that. Um, but it's like the 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 spiritual turning point, and it's and the, the Buddha the Buddha speaks of it as a uh, like it's a level of realization. So once that's been reached, then the mind can't fall away from that, and that that's that's sort of significant. It's so like uh, like having been on a a long sea journey, you finally get to shore, and like, okay, we're on dry land now. So it doesn't matter what the sea does, we're on dry land. <laughs> okay, there's a, there's a, uh, um, there's only so much more of the journey to go. So in in terms of the Buddhist uh, psychology around stream entry, it's said that uh, a being who's uh, arrived at stream entry cannot be reborn in any of the lower realms. You can't be born as an animal, or in the ghost realm, or in the hell realms. You have a, a maximum of seven more lifetimes before full enlightenment is is realized, um, and uh, the, um, uh, the 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 mind has uh, uh, transcended the first three three fetters: attachment to self-view, I am the body, I am the personality, uh, attachment to to doubt about what is the path and what is not the path, and then attachment to conventions, uh, right, uh, rites and rituals, or, or social conventions. Are seen as human agreements rather than anything uh, that could ever be uh, absolute. So that, um, and I, uh, I was very impressed with uh, all the, the different readings that uh, Lumpur Pasanno put together in those chapters. And I think, that if I remember correctly, the very first chapter on stream entry, the, the first quotation he uses, um, 
it's a uh, it's kind of emphasizing the Buddha's uh, emphasizing of how valuable it is uh, uh, for the um, for an individual to uh, to reach this level of realization and what a, and what a difference it makes. Um, I think I was talking about the the simile of the fingernail uh, a few days ago, where the Buddha reached down and scratched the ground and sort of picked up his finger and said, "What do you think is greater, the uh, the the dirt under my fingernail or the great earth itself?" And well, venerable sir, the <laughs> the, uh, the dirt under your fingernail is a very small amount, and the great earth itself is very very large. And then the Buddha says, um, "Would well, similarly." The amount of suffering one who has reached, the, who has made the breakthrough to stream entry, can expect to experience, is equivalent to the, the the earth under my fingernail, and the suffering that one who has not made the breakthrough to stream entry can expect to experience is comparable to the great earth itself. So he was very gifted at coming up with these memorable similes. But I think the the very first one in the chapter that um, uh, Lumpur Pasanno uh, included, as far as I re- recollect, uh, the Buddha said. Uh, if you were given, if you were given uh, the opportunity to strike a deal, whereby you are skewered by a hundred spears in the morning, a hundred spears at midday, and a hundred spears in the evening, every day for a hundred years, but at the end of that hundred years you were guaranteed to make the breakthrough to stream entry, you would be wise to make the deal. <laughs> so that's about. I did the I did the math. Uh, I did the sums on that. It's about 10 million skewerings, <laughs> give or take. So, uh, so he said, that, that's a good deal. <laughs> that's a good deal. And say, so, you know, immeasurable are the numbers of times our heads have been cut off and our, 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 our lives have ended miserably in, in, this, in the round of, of rebirths. So if you can be guaranteed stream entry after 100 years of being skewered by 100 spears three times a day, okay, make the deal. Again, he's very gifted at these punchy, <laughs> uh, compelling images to, to get your attention. So uh, underscoring that this is a significant uh, level of insight uh, to, to reach. So and then as, uh, um, as Lumpur puts it here, yeah, you, um, you know the way to go beyond the mental afflictions, but are still unable to go there, so you step back or you're certain of both the goal and the most direct way to it. So that's the vichikicca is doubt. And uh, the, the doubt that is the, is the second of the ten fetters, the ten, the ten sam, samyojana that constitute the obstacles to enlightenment. Uh, the, so self-view is the first one, uh, doubt is the second one, and attachment to, to conventions is the third one. The doubt is not sort of what shall I have for breakfast or... Um, where you know where should I go for a walk today? Uh, it's doubt about what's the path and what is not the path. That's specifically that 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 uh, that range of doubting. So it's not just any kind of um, questioning of the mind, uh, but rather that that sense of, of certainty. Okay, this is the way to practice. This is the, this is what needs to be done, um, and so that. Rather like, uh, it says, you're, um, you know the way to go beyond mental afflictions, but you're still unable to go there. So, so it's rather like, you know what the path is, you know what the goal is, but um, you, you haven't you know, finished making the journey, or you, you know what needs to be done, but you, you haven't got the, the resources, to, or the, the, you haven't made the, the full journey as yet. So uh, there's quite a lot there. Uh, Lumpur packs a lot into these... <laughs> 
<laughs> these uh, few paragraphs. But, uh, any thoughts, questions, reflections? Yes. Uh, when when you talk about the you know the, you know the path, is this a question of like pure sort of resolve, or or actually actually kind of knowing something more specific, or is it? Yeah, it's not just being determined. I'm going to do it. It's not just that. Um, uh, that can lead in all sorts of directions. <laughs> But it's the, uh, specifically, and he goes on to talk a little bit more about that, it's, um, it's specifically around Anicca. And the, the, in, in many respects, it's, it's, it, in terms of the development of insight, it's the, knowing what the path is, is knowing what any kind of formation, whatever it might be, mental, physical, uh, coarse, subtle, uh, wholesome or unwholesome or neutral, it's necessarily uh, in a state of change. It's necessarily uncertain, and it's necessarily you know, empty of of intrinsic substance. So that's the the kind of the key insight. Um, and so that that knowing that okay, the 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 path is recognizing that everything is impermanent. <laughs> everything is necessarily impermanent. Impermanent. If it's a thing, it can't have any intrinsic permanent substance or coherence it's, it's a pro, any what we call a thing is really a process and it's that that's the key insight that is or lies at the center of of that uh, say the realization of stream entry so in the uh, oftentimes when it, um, the the in the teachings is characterizing that that uh, somebody realizing stream entry uh, like uh, Anya Kundanya, like in the Dhammachaka Sutta that we chant. This is Yankinchi Samudaya Dhammang Sabantang Niroda Dhammanti. So, what, uh, what Kundanya realized when he heard the Buddha giving the teaching about the Four Noble Truths, like, you know, the Buddha hasn't mentioned Anicca, <laughs> really, in, in, the, in that teaching. But says, uh, then Kundanya knew um, that the eye of Dhamma arose, Dhammachakung uh, Udapadi. Uh, and so, what did the eye of Dhamma see? It saw all that arises. Is subject to cessation. Yankinchi samudaya dhammang, whatever is subject to arising, is subject to cessation. So when the eye of dhamma, which is also another way of talking about stream entry, uh, when the eye of dhamma opened, what it saw is like, oh, everything that arises passes away. Everything. And so it's the, the appreciation of the full implications of that. Whereas we might be able to say, okay, yeah, well, sound changes. And day and night change, but then we don't notice that all the things that we assume are, are permanent. <laughs> so it's that's uh, that sense of appreciation that oh right, if it, if it's a thing, it's necessarily uncertain and in a state of change. And so another of Lumpur well-known and much uh, appreciated Dhamma talks is called "Not Sure: The Standard of the Noble Ones." Mainer uh, that and that using that reflection on uncertainty as the gateway to stream entry and that, that kind of that making that breakthrough. So it's that um, determination is not the same as getting beyond doubt. <laughs> and, you know, so it can be like, I'm determined to do this, but then you can be heading in all kinds of different directions. <laughs> and there can be a, a lot of, of self involved in that. Like, so it... Um, Determination is one thing, but the insight into what the path is, it's like going out on a walk, 
throwing away the map and say, I'm going <laughs> I'm going to walk to Tring. Uh, I don't know where it is, but I'm going to go. I'm going to get there. And you just sort of set off down a footpath. It's like, well, I'm in Dagnall. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm in Aylesbury. How did I get here? That's, I'll keep going. I'll get to Tring eventually. It's like, well, maybe you won't do it today. <laughs> so it's that, uh, comparing it to a map, it's like, okay, this is the path I need to get to, to that uh, that particular destination. So that's this is the path to follow. And... And, uh, and I, I know it goes there. And that resolve, uh, uh, and that realization is is not changed. Can't change then. That, yeah, that's that. That's a uh, stream entry. That's like that. That's uh, like unshakably clear. So that's like the the. There's a second fetter. The second of those sort of chains that fall away. It's like there's no doubt about what the path is and what is not the path. So. Uh, there can be all kinds of other spiritual influences or bits of guidance around, but you know, okay, right at the core, this is what needs to be fully appreciated. That uh, if it's a thing, yeah, that uh, you know, it's it's necessarily in a state of change. Yeah. Ajahn, is that possible somewhere enter the stream without knowing it? Uh, well, again, I think the, the <laughs> I didn't get around to looking up that. That, uh, that reference, but uh, I think that there are one or two occasions where that's referred to, and that, um, that uh, somebody has uh, uh, reached that point. I mean, it's rather like traveling through the countryside thinking, oh, well, when am I ever going to get to Tring? They say, well, this is Tring. Oh, really? Oh, I'm here already, am I? <laughs> oh, wow, oh, that's great. Wow. Okay, oh, oh good. So this is Tring. <laughs> okay, well, it's... Uh, <laughs> Where's the tea shop? <laughs> so uh, I, again, I I, uh, I was uh, thinking, oh, I should look that up to do a Google search on on uh, Pali uh, uh, enlightened without realizing it. But I, I think there's there's a, there are, there's a few mentions of that in the scriptures, and that uh, but uh, I and I it's ringing a faint bell, but uh, because also. Um, you know the the whole kind of languaging of things is you know that you could be a spiritual practitioner and you have a whole different sp- tradition. You've got a whole different language, a whole different way of talking about things, and um, and so that it could be that um, you have developed the, the the spiritual path to a, a very high degree and in a very um, very effective way, but you don't talk, you don't think in terms of stream entry or Buddha Dharma Sangha or you haven't got that kind of language, but the necessary, you, you're in Tring, whatever you call it, you know, it's like you, <laughs> you've, uh, that's where, well, that, that's the quality that's been arrived at, no matter what you call it. And again, in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, there's an interesting uh, dialogue there where the Buddha's asked about different spiritual paths and, you know, are there other paths that can lead to enlightenment? And he said, uh, in the, in, uh, I forget exactly where it is, but it's in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. And the, the Buddha says, if a path contains sila, samadhi, and panya, it can lead to complete liberation. If it doesn't contain those, then it can't. So it's like, it doesn't matter what you call it. It doesn't matter like the symbolism or the languaging. That's secondary to the fact But sila, samadhi, panya, they have to be uh, embodied in the in the, the practice. So that's the crucial thing. 
So, so do you think that the other people, not Buddhism, not in Buddhism, could become a, a studio entry? Mm-hmm. Like, for example, I think Marcus Aurelius, who wrote a meditation, mm-hmm. I, I have his uh, audio, you know, his book, mm-hmm. audio. He sounds really You've got audio of Marcus Aurelius. <laughs> That'd be impressive. <laughs> <laughs> he was lived in Roman time. He was a Roman, uh, he was a Roman emperor. <laughs> okay, I, I, I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. I thought, oh, that's an interesting recording. <laughs> he sounds really funny, you know. He sounds the way it's uh, written, and the audio sounds mm-hmm. like he's talking. Mm-hmm. In any case, he sounds very much like a stream entry, mm-hmm. very much like a Buddhism, and he Yeah. a lot of things. You know, it, the, um, particularly the, the, uh, the Stoic philosophers... From uh, from ancient times, from the ancient worlds, the Stoics, and um, so like, uh, and then uh, th- th- uh, people like uh, Epictetus. That they oftentimes people who are Buddhists read those and like, or Marcus Aurelius, and go, "Wow, is this was this guy a Buddhist?" You know, because it's it's very very compatible to Buddhist teachings and think maybe there were some Buddhist missionaries in <laughs> in Athens or Rome you know, at, the, at these times uh, maybe so but maybe uh, they had arrived at those same kind of insights but I would say that it's yeah it's, it's and the, the point that the Buddha makes in that statement is it, it's exactly how you name those qualities it is you know it's up to the sort of cultural and, and language influences that, that but this as long as those qualities are there then there's, um, that level of insight can be can be actualized, can be reached. Yeah. The um, uh, the uh, oh, uh, I think actually Heraclitus is mentioned in the Pali Canon called Iraka, Iraka, and uh, I'm not I'm, again I'm not sure exactly where it is, uh, but uh, there's the um, the Buddha talks about Iraka. And says he he has insight into impermanence, but he doesn't understand uh, anatta. And Heraclitus was the one who said you can't step into the same river twice. And so a lot of his teachings are panta rei is uh, everything is flowing, uh, is the the, the Greek um, term for that. Everything is in a state of flow. Was Heraclitus? So somewhere in the Pali, uh, you find eraka is mentioned. The, they they did uh, so there 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 was knowledge of the of the Greek world in the Buddha's time. Um, they were called the Yonika. So Ionia, uh, Iona is Yonika is spelled Yonika Y O N A K A in Pali. So there's reference to the the Greek world in the Pali literature. So there was maybe some correspondence, but um, yeah, I think that. The, the <laughs> the mind is the mind, irrespective of the social conditioning, and that uh, and also the way that Lumpur Shah was was totally at home meeting people from different spiritual traditions, whether they were like Christian priests or um, or Zen practitioners <coughs> in, the, in the West, that he was totally at home with uh, with them and was was not sort of. Um, uh, wasn't biased by any of the external features or the languaging, but just sort of talking with people and and uh, getting us, and also seeing how they operated their value systems and so on. That uh, that would be what he would be guided by.
So to continue. Simply speaking, this state that has arisen is the mind itself. If you contemplate according to the truth of the way things are, you will see that only one path exists and there is nothing else to do in life but follow it. You understand that states of happiness and suffering are not the path to follow. Attaching to either will cause suffering to arise. You understand this and you're mindful with this right view, but at the same time, you're not yet able to fully let go of your attachments. So again, I would say there is, uh, and it, again, it's a, it's a fairly blunt statement. Um, one path exists and there's nothing else to do in life but follow it. <laughs> so that... Uh, it's like uh, to express that you know, everything hinges around this. Yes, we might have a career as a as a musician or as a, a gardener or as a teacher or, or um, yeah, a business person or whatever it might be. But what really is going to make a difference is this this sort of a spiritual dimension right at the very center. And so I, I think those are good things to to contemplate. One path exists, and there's nothing else to do in life but to follow it. That. I think, yeah, well, I, 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 I'd rather like to do this, I'd rather like to do that. And so, yeah, we can, yeah, we can choose different ways to spend our time, different activities to engage our attention in, but what he's saying here is that the the one thing that's going to make a real difference in in our life is cultivating this uh, path of, of insight that leads to, leads to liberation. So... Uh, so you must walk the middle path, which means being aware of the various states of happiness and suffering, while at the same time keeping them at a distance. Whenever the mind attaches to states of happiness and suffering, awareness of the attachment is always there. You don't encourage or give value to the positive states, even as you're holding on to them, and you don't despise or fear the negative states. This way you can observe the mind as it actually is, and at all times you take the middle way of equanimity as the object of mind. Equanimity will necessarily arise as the path to follow. You must move along that path little by little. So that, uh, he, and again he's saying that uh, uh, even though you know what the path is, um, then there's still the, the, the habits of attachment um, uh, can still occur, the, and the causes for those habits of, of attachment uh, can still operate. But as he says, you don't encourage or give value to those positive states, even as you're holding on to them. So the mind, oh, I really like this. And you think, I'm holding on to this. <laughs> the mind is grasping this and trying to, trying to keep it. Like, but you, you can't, the, the, the knowledge that you're grasping doesn't uh, mean that, that, that it can be completely let go of. But at least you know that you're grasping and you're experiencing the results of grasping, rather like if you're, um, you know, you're addicted to uh, to nicotine or caffeine or, or something that uh, you you know that the effects of the addiction addiction are there. You can feel it. You, it doesn't just because you know that the, the the addiction is there doesn't mean to say that the effects suddenly evaporate. But uh, they are still felt, and uh, they are still because they've been caused by smoking or by drinking uh, tea or coffee, but the um, the mind can know the, those effects of uh, of, atta uh, of attachments and and be aware of them and more and more quickly and completely, and so that uh, that there's a, a clear witnessing of that process. And then, as he says, um, 
the middle way of equanimity. Equanimity will necessarily arise as the path to follow. So um, as I'm reading this, this uh, I feel that what he's talking about is, and particularly, say, say if you are addicted to caffeine or nicotine or whatever, and that, uh, or you know, other forms of addictions <laughs> that, uh, that we might have, that the, one of the ways to work with that uh, addictive process is to recognize, oh, because I've smoked these cigarettes, then now I'm feeling I, I really like a cigarette. Or because I've drink so many cups of tea or coffee a day, I'm feeling like, oh, wouldn't li- uh, I wouldn't mind a cup of tea right now. But this is the cause, this is the effect. So the, the, the way to develop equanimity, uh, as we, uh, we sort of uh, refer to in the, the, the Brahma Viharas chanting that we do, is to consider cause and effect. I'm the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma, related to my karma, abide supported by my karma. Whatever karma I shall do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. So um, that's the, the sort of standard or classical way of developing equanimity, is to reflect, here's the cause, here's the effect. This is how nature works. So it shifts the, the, uh, the, 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 the habit from a self-centered perspective to a dhamma-centered or nature-centered perspective. Like, here's the cause, you know, I've drunk, you know, eight cups of tea a day, so now I feel like, well, like a cup of tea. <laughs> that's, that's the cause, that's the effect. So there's still a, the, the uh, you know, I'd like a cup of tea feeling, maybe. But um, seeing where it comes from, then there's a, a greater perspective, and that's what, uh, that perspective is what is the, the core of, of equanimity, that even-mindedness or serenity in the face of those conditions. So that that, um, even as we're experiencing the results of past habits and, uh, and loves and hates and so on and so forth, then that sense of, well, of course this is upsetting because, <laughs> because of this experience or this uh, activity, this is what I used to do in the past, so now this is, this is how the mind relates to it in the present. That's the cause, that's the effect. Uh-huh, okay. And that, that kind of balancing effect is um, the, uh, say, over and over again, one brings that into, into, into uh, uh, say, uh, uh, working with those effects of attachment uh, to what we like, what we dislike. Um, uh, and so then, the, all, as those attachments arise, they keep ripening as, as equanimity, they keep feeding that equanimous or balanced state of mind. Here's the cause, here's the effect. Okay. This is this is how nature operates. It's not a personal thing. So any questions, thoughts, reflections? Equanimity is comprehensive. <laughs> When eventually the mind is fully aware of the various positive and negative states, it's able to lay aside the happiness and suffering, the pleasure and sadness, to lay aside all that is the world, and so become the knower of the world. The mind in full knowing can then let go and settle down, for the reason that you've done the practice and followed the path to this point. You know what you must do to reach the end of the path, and you keep striving to uproot and dislodge your attachments. 
Focusing on the conditions of mind from, the, from moment to moment, it's not necessary to be interviewed by a teacher about your state of mind or to do anything special. When there is attachment to happy or unhappy states of mind, there must be the clear and unwavering understanding that any such attachment is delusion. Such attachment is attachment to the world, being stuck in the world. What is it that creates the world? The world is created and established through ignorance, because we're not aware that the mind gives importance to things, fashioning and creating sankhara, mental formations, all the time. So again, the knower of the world, lokoidu, is one of the qualities of the the enlightened mind that we, we recite in the, the chanting, um, Lokavitu, the knower of the world. And so that's, a, um, and again, representing the quality of insight that knows the world, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought, uh, feeling, arising and passing away, uh, to be the, the knower of the world. And so it's attuned to, the mind is attuned to the world, but not limited by the world. Then uh, Lumpur Chao's comment, it's not, not necessary to be interviewed by a teacher about your state of mind or to do anything special. So um, in, the, in the 60s, late 50s and 60s in particular, uh, a number of different um, uh, schools or styles of meditation were, uh, grew up in, in Thailand and particularly influenced by the Sixth Great Council in, uh, in Burma, in, in Rangoon in 56-57. And... Um, and so the, particularly the, the style of practice of Mahasi Sayadaw, uh, Mahasi Sayadaw was the first uh, person to uh, establish a, a lay meditation center, uh, as far as I know, uh, in Rangoon, the Mahasi Yekta. And so that had a, a big impact uh, on a number of the, the Thai Ajans, Thai elders and uh, senior monks who came to take part in the, in the conference, the Great Council. And so when they went back to Thailand in the late 50s, early 60s, and they established um, the, some monasteries that had a meditation uh, center or a, a focus on practice and a few of them were established in the Mahasi style so like the first monastery where Lumpur Sumato lived in Nongkai they had a Mahasi style um, practice that was established there and also I think um, section 5 of what Mahathat in Bangkok there, there was a Mahasi style practice and so um, uh, and part of that is uh, like daily interviews with the teacher very short uh, interviews about where where your what your experience is and what your practice is at. I've never done a Mahasi retreat, so I can't speak from direct experience. But as I understand it, um, that sort of daily interviews with the teachers very much a part of the the thing. So oftentimes people would come to Ajahn Chah and say, "Do you give daily interviews to your students?" And he would say, "You should interview yourself," <laughs> or words to that effect. That uh, and so his, his comment here is, I think, based on that. Um, that that was around in the in the atmosphere, kind of uh, um, people re- had had that experience staying in other places or wondering whether he had that as part of his style of teaching. It's not necessary to be interviewed by a teacher about your state of mind or to do anything special, which is a, also a very interesting comment. Um, that. Um, when there is attachment to happy or unhappy states of mind, there must be the clear and unwavering understanding that any such attachment is delusion. So, such attachment is attachment to the world, being stuck in the world. So that would be uh, re- also referring, uh, as you said, not to do anything special. So whether it's 
in formal practice, doing sitting or walking meditation, or, or carrying out your chores, or living your daily life with your family, or in the workplace, all of those different environments, it's just what is the mind doing with happiness and unhappiness, and, and uh, uh, the different moods that, that arise, how are they being held? And what is it that creates the world? So this is um, uh, a very different pers uh, perspective. And sometimes you get a uh, 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 some uh, Buddhist uh, Buddhist expressions of say, well, the, the kind of trying to put down Judeo-Christian approach, saying you know, they say God, you know God created the world, but in Buddhism we say ignorance creates the world. So that uh, <laughs> what what is it that is the creator of the world? Rather than God the Creator, they say um, uh, ignorance. As and I've heard that said a few times as a way of sort of putting down the Judeo-Christian model, but I think it's sort of misunderstanding the the, um, the symbolism and mythology somewhat. But avicca pachaya sankara, ignorance conditions formations, uh, formations uh, sankara pachaya uh, vinyana uh, vinyana pachaya namarupa. So ignorance conditions formations, formations condition discriminative consciousness, discriminative consciousness conditions mind and body, mentality, materiality. And so that uh, I would say that this is uh, um, the, the, the most helpful teaching on this area about creating the world and um, what Lung means by saying that the world is created and established through ignorance is the, the dialogue between the Buddha and the Deva called Rohitasa uh, in the um, connected discourses on Devas, so on, on Devas, um, Deva, the, the, the sons of Devas, I think, there's Devaputta Sangyuta. And so Rohitasa comes to the Buddha as a, a Deva appears to the Buddha and says, uh, before I was born as a Deva in this lifetime, I was a yogi in the human world, and I made this vow to to walk to to the end of the world, and I and I journeyed for years and years. I walked uh, 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 for for a long, long, long time, and uh, and so I uh, I never reached the end of the world, and I passed away on the journey, and now I've been reborn as this uh, in this deva realm. So can you tell me, is it possible to to get to the end of the world by walking? And then the Buddha says it's impossible to get to the end of the world by walking, but uh, unless you get to the end of the world, you won't get to the end of suffering. And then um, he goes on to explain it's in this this very body with its its perceptions and its thoughts. There is the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. So the expression of it is an exact parallel to the you know the world equals dukkha. It matches the four noble truths, and so. Um, in that respect, the, you know, the, if you do the lo if you sort of follow the logic of that, the world equals dukkha, um, and we would think well, the cessation of the world sounds like annihilation or, or the kind of uh, ecological disaster, or the heat death at the end of the universe and such like. But I would say it's more helpful to see it as the uh, the ending of the solidity of the world. It's the uh, the mind creating the world as you know, a separate substantial quality and so that the uh, and the Buddha is saying if you don't reach the end of the world you won't reach the end of suffering and so that um, that the mind that says the, the world is absolutely solid and real the, um, uh, and that the, the more that the mind attaches 
substantiality uh, to the world, uh, the world of experience, then the more it's creating the causes uh, of dukkha. And a, a parallel, uh, and it's interesting, Bhikkhu Bodhi says in his notes on that passage that he says is that, that comment to Rohitase, he said, is probably the most profound utterance in the in world in the, all the philosophies of the world <laughs> and he's not a very he doesn't speak in very extravagant inflated ways he's very discerning in the language he uses uh, so that's quite a statement from him and then in a parallel passage which I also like to quote very often which is in the uh, the connected discourses on the six senses uh, which is chapter 35 Sutta number 116, I think, if I remember correctly. Um, then the Buddha says, uh, the, um, uh, that whereby one is a perceiver of the world and a, and a conceiver of the world, that is what is called the world, uh, the uh, loka in this Dhamma and discipline. And what is it whereby one is a perceiver of the world and a conceiver of the world, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. So that is what is called the world in this Dhamma and discipline. So in that he's saying that you know the world is the world of our experience. You can't really meaningfully talk about the world as a sort of solid external uh, quality, but rather we can only meaningfully talk about the world as uh, as it's experienced through the agency of these minds. So that that giving the world a false solidity uh, is uh, uh, is done through attaching to what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch and, and think and taking those to be absolutely reliable uh, and true and so as I was giving the example the other day about the the carpet going wavy <laughs> if, you, if you relax your, your vision and then the, this very stable carpet can, uh, at least in my, the way my eyes work if, you just, if I relax my eyes in a certain way then this, this carpet will start to undulate like the surface of a, a lake or a pond or, or the sea it's not really undulating, really, quote unquote, but it can be seen to be doing that. And then you blink and it stops moving. So, uh, the uh, recognizing that the mind is creating its uh, its best version, its best guess of what the the material world is like, uh, and it puts it together and and says this is what's happening. And uh, again, I think I was recommending. Um, the uh, Malcolm Gladwell book Blink is a very interesting read in terms of perception and uh, the fragile nature, subjective nature of perception. Blink is a sort of popular science book. Um, and also um, uh, Oliver Sacks, who is a, a, a neurologist uh, in, uh, um, living in, in the United States, a number of his books like The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, and um, there was an, uh, an article he wrote in, I think, either the Atlantic Monthly or, uh, or the New Yorker, I forget which, which is called To See and To Not See. And a uh, very interesting sort of uh, exploration of the neuroscience of perception. And that, that article by Oliver Sacks, it's a, it talks about people who are blind from birth who had their sight through medical procedures were, were enabled to, to see later in life after they'd already grown into adulthood or into to adolescence. Um, they, they were born blind so they'd never seen and then their, their, their eyes helped uh, to be functional and um, 
a particular study made on this this uh, this group of people that uh, what it's what what uh, the world of vision is like when you haven't grown up with su- with light and, and vision and suddenly it appears in your world for many of them it was quite disorienting because they they developed a, a world that was based on sound and feel and and intuition and they, and, and what we would think of as as subliminal cues how they can uh, a person who's totally blind can walk through a, a room full of furniture they don't know that they're that they're hearing echoes or feeling air currents but they can dodge around tables and, and chairs and find their way through a, a, a room of furniture even though they, they can't see but they they're they're mapping the world through their their own cues and when they could uh, for many of them as I re- recollect uh, it was it, this, it really threw them through literally threw them off balance to be able to see things because their mind hadn't developed those cues and that uh, uh, again talking about the the fabricated nature of, of perception one of the, the examples that Oliver Sacks gives in, in that article he says so if you see two basketball players on a court and one of them throws the ball to the other you think you're seeing the round ball going from one person's hands through the air and landing in the other person's hands. That's what we think we see. Um, when you study the, 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 these visual processes of people who are not conditioned with their vision, actually what you see is a smear of orange. That's, that's the, uh, but the, Because the brain knows what a basketball looks like uh, <laughs> when it's stationary, then it, it maps that on. To the object, so it's saying I'm seeing the ball going from this person's hands to that person, but what's actually registered in the in the visual cortex is a kind of a, just as sort of an orange blur, but it patches in. With, well, I'm pretty sure that orange blur is the ball that started there and ended there, <laughs> but as it's moving, the, the eye can't actually create the image quickly enough, and we're doing that all the time. We're sort of the mind is. Uh, the brain is creating best guesses and patching things in yeah. and then sometimes what what it patches in is <laughs> the best guess is not an accurate guess and you, uh, and so that particularly if the light is dim with with vision and uh, you think oh, is that a is that a chair or is is that uh, is that a box oh it's the cat yeah. <laughs> but you know, your eye so first of all you see a box and then you know, then you realize you get closer. Oh no, it's not a box; it's a cat. It's a, uh, that your your brain is conjures up different possibilities, and uh, and so that those kind of small everyday events are helping to indicate that's the uh, uh, the anicca, the fabricated nature and the dependent nature of of perceptions. So the world is is, sta- is created and established through <laughs> ignorance. Uh, it's a, that's a um, uh, that so the reification, the, the making the world solid or making it uh, substantial, is based on on ignorance. And the mind that is awake, that is aware, sees that that these are um, the mind's best guess for how things are. But it's it's a a um, it's a fabricated uh, a form that is experienced uh, in, uh, individually and it's not the same as everybody else's uh, representation so to continue 
It's here that the practice really becomes interesting. Wherever you have attachment, you just keep working at that point. You're in the process of finishing the job. The mind doesn't let a single experience slip by. Nothing can withstand the power of your mindfulness and wisdom. Even if the mind is caught in some unwholesome state, you know it as such and are not heedless. It's like stepping on thorns. Of course, you don't try to step on thorns. You try to avoid them. But nevertheless, sometimes you step on one. When you do, how does it feel? Once you know the path of practice, you know that which is the world, that which is suffering, and that which binds us to the endless cycle of birth and death. Even though you know this, you're unable to stop stepping on those thorns. The mind still follows various states of joy and sorrow, but it doesn't get completely lost in them. You sustain a continuous effort to destroy any attachment in the mind, to clear from the mind all that is the world. Everything external has been set aside at this point, and from here on you just watch body and mind, observing mind and its objects arising and passing away, understanding that having arisen, they pass away. With passing away, there is further arising, birth and death, death and birth, cessation followed by arising, arising followed by cessation. Ultimately, you're merely watching the act of cessation. Once the mind is practicing and experiencing this, it doesn't have to go following up or searching for anything else. Instead, it'll be aware of whatever arises with full mindfulness. Seeing is just seeing. Knowing is just knowing. The mind and phenomena are just as they are. The mind isn't creating anything additional. So, keep practicing. Calming the mind little by little. If you start thinking, doesn't matter. If you're not thinking, doesn't matter. The important thing is to develop this understanding of the mind. It's the end of that particular talk. So this, uh, uh, this uh, last couple of paragraphs where he speaks about the, uh, the reaching the end of the path, that uh, the spiritual fulfillment, seeing is just seeing, knowing is just knowing. Uh, mind and phenomena are just as they are. So that echoes um, the teaching of the Buddha to Bahia, probably in quite a number of you are familiar with, where, uh, again, uh, there's another deva involved in this story. So Bahia was a, a spiritual teacher and had quite a big following, and um, he was under the impression that he was an arahant and was, was totally enlightened. And then this deva, who'd been a relative of Bahia's in, uh, in an earlier lifetime, said, uh, appeared to Bahia and said, not only are you not an arahant, but you're not on the path to realizing arahantship either. And so Bahia, to his credit, said, so are there any arahants in the world? And then the deva said, yes, actually, there's this uh, Samana Gotama living in, uh, near Savati, and uh, he is indeed a great uh, arahant and a great teacher. So it said that Bahia just started walking then and there, heading to Savati, and, just, uh, and he was living on the coast, so it was about a two or three hundred mile walk to get to... to um, to Savati, um, and then encountered the Buddha in the street uh, when he was on his arms round, and, said, and sort of knelt down in front of the Buddha and said, please, Venerable Sir, can you teach me the Dhamma? And the Buddha said, well, this is not a convenient time, Bahia, because um, uh, we're on the arms round. Uh, uh, Bahia said, Venerable Sir, life is uncertain. Neither you nor I know when, when our life will come to an end. Please teach me the Dhamma. And this being a Buddhist story, he, the Buddha says, this is, not the wrong, this is not a good time. And he asks again, so after he asks, 
The third time, then the Buddha says, well, if, it, if a Tathagata is pressed three times, then he has to respond, so pay attention. And then he say, gives this, this very uh, significant and pithy teaching where he says, in the scene there is only the scene, in the herd there is only the herd. And that's S-E-E-N, not S-C-E-N-E. <laughs> Sometimes people mishear that. In the scene is there only the scene. In the herd, there's only the herd. It's H-E-A-R-D, not H-E-R-D. I've known monks who have misheard that and they're like, wow, in the scene, yeah, this is, this is, this is the scene, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, like mishearing the teaching and developing their own kind of, like, blessed are the cheesemakers. You know? <laughs> seriously, that, that did happen. That, uh, a couple of times, actually, two separate instances where people have misheard it. And so, um, in the scene there is only the scene, in the herd there is only the herd, in the sensed there is only the sensed, in the cognized there is only the cognized. Thus, this is how you should train yourself. And if you see, uh, if you are aware in the scene there is only the scene and so forth, you will recognize, uh, you will realize that there is no thing there. The, the objective world is empty. And if, you, and if it's recognized that there is no thing there, you will also recognize there is no thing here the subject side is also empty and uh, when you realize there is no thing there and no thing here uh, you will not be able to find yourself either in the world of this or the world of that or any place in between this Bahia is the end of suffering so to Bahia's credit he became an Arahant right there so he got the, the Buddha did give out not exactly prizes but gestures of recognition there from time to time so uh, Bahia got known as the one who understood the teaching most uh, most rapidly. So he became an arahant right there in the street, and he asked if he could be, become the Buddha's disciple. And the Buddha said, "Well, uh, he wanted to go forth as a monk with the Buddha." And he said, "Well, do you have a a robe and and bowl?" And Bahia was a, a, a an ascetic who wore um, robes made of of tree bark. He was a bark clad ascetic. And he didn't have an arms bowl, so um, he went off to try and find uh, some cloth to make a robe and uh, an arms bowl, and he got knocked down by a runaway cow and died in the street. So uh, he was right. <laughs> and so when they, uh, people, the Sangha told the Buddha afterwards, Venerable Sir, that, that the wanderer who came and talked to you this morning, he just got knocked down by a cow and died. You know, what happened to him? And the Buddha said, well, Bahia, he, was, he didn't bother me with too many details. He understood the teaching very quickly, and he, has, uh, uh, he realized full and complete enlightenment uh, when, uh, when I gave him that teaching. So he's not going to be re reborn any place. So that um, is the Bahia Sutta, which you find in a, a few places, in the Udana and uh, other places in the teachings. The mind isn't creating anything additional. It's nipapancha. It's free of complication. And uh, as he says, you know, if you start thinking, it doesn't matter. If you're not thinking, it doesn't matter. <laughs> the important thing is to develop this understanding of the mind. So in this, in this respect, uh, he's highlighting the fact that thought is really just another sense object. It's like the eye perceives light, the ears perceive sound, the mind perceives thought. So just as you can be seeing colors and forms and uh, hearing different sounds, and it doesn't necessarily obstruct the, the clarity of the mind, so there can be thought. You know, thought is just another sense object. So just because it just, if there happens to be thoughts around, doesn't mean to say the mind is necessarily cluttered or, or burdened or, or um, that clarity of the mind is, is uh, obstructed in any way.
So once again, seven o'clock has come around. That's the end of that, that particular talk. So I'll leave it there for today. <laughs>